morning, fish keepers. Cam here from the fishroom.co.nz. We've done it again. We've done Friday. Let's do coffee. I could tell you before I even had a mouthful that was going to be good because, man, do I need coffee today. Oh, that's real good. All right. Uh, I'm not going to have too much uh, dilly-dallying about. We've got a special guest uh, sitting in behind. So we're going to bring on John. Welcome, John. Hey, Dan. Welcome, Dan from Dan's Fish. Thank you very much. Hello, everybody. Hi, Dan. Hey, John. Cool. All right. So um, first of all, again, thank you very much for joining us. It's much appreciated. Um, it's always nice to have, have guests on to come in and tell us about their story. So... Um, First and foremost, how did you get involved in into fish keeping? I um, my my brother, my little brother, got an aquarium, and he put it on the kitchen counter. It was a little ten gallon. He bought it like the, a local thrift store, secondhand store. And I remember um, what do I remember? I remember a rosy barb, probably a single one. I remember a harlequin <laughs> rasbora, probably a single one. I think there was an albino Aeneas or maybe just a regular Aeneas. I can't remember. A couple neon tetras, but probably like two, you know, <laughs> we did. <laughs> community thing. No, yep. no one knew what they were doing, but I was fascinated by it. I just, uh, I could watch it. It was better than television to me. And for some reason it was just magical. And I decided to get my own tank. And then I got three tanks and then pretty soon my entire bedroom was full of tanks. And that was probably by the end of that summer when he had got that first 10 gallon. Um, yeah. So it hooked me like heroin and I went hard and I, yeah. it's just been there ever since. I, I have no other explanation other than it just does it for me. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a story of, of, story of many people starting with one or, or someone in the family starting with one and then, that becomes their interest and the the original family member is not as keen and that that's pretty much it so yeah <laughs> yeah well he went on to like you know become a get his law degree and his mba and be hugely successful so i'm still yeah. stuck on fish <laughs> <laughs> i think it's worked out just fine then yeah cool so um i guess we're going to jump forward a little bit from from early days to kind of where you are now um something that's really appealed to me is is from watching your videos and the things that you've mentioned the way you talk is is prolific care that you put into your animals mm -hmm. and the fact that they're not a commodity and, and that they're a living creature that's in your care um how has that kind of developed for you has that always been there or is that just just kind of rambled through and all of a sudden you're you're kind of in that sort of situation because i don't think it's saying that yeah. everybody kind of has if that makes sense yeah i think it's a result of me being a hobbyist yeah. um rachel o'leary said something once that stuck with me she described herself as a professional hobbyist yeah and i think that's an apt description i think it also comes from the fact that this business grew out of fun this wasn't the plan. I, I have uh, advanced degrees. I was a professor uh, at a local college here, doing just fine, had tenure and all of that. Um, 
and I just had a basement full of fish because I loved them. And I've always had basements or rooms or whatever full of fish. So for the first 26 years of doing this, it was just as a hobbyist. And so yeah. I was concerned about conservation, uh, quality of stock, breeding quality lines that aren't too inbred and breeding for the right traits. The, those things that are kind of the basis of a, a strong foundation for healthy fish in a healthy hobby. And yeah. I was very comfortable shipping fish because I was mostly into killifish. And to get killifish, you, you can't really go to your local store and, and find mm -hmm. very many of them. So we would mail eggs and fish back and forth all over. Um, and that was just second nature to me from the time I was a wee lad. So that was already there. And then what happened was uh, in, in my department at the college, two of my coworkers retired. We got new leadership at the college and they decided they were not going to replace those positions. So I was like, my, my department's been downsized. I survived. Make sure my mic's okay here. Um, but I couldn't do good work. The quality of work I wanted to do without collaborators. And my mm -hmm. field is theater. That's what I was teaching. And so if you can imagine having to be an expert at costumes and lighting and acting and directing and theater history and playwriting and sound design and all these other things that go into, into a good theater production, one person is not likely to be able no. to nail all of those. Mm -hmm. And so I was unhappy with the quality of work I would be able to do. That's kind of what happened there. I still liked a lot of it. But I told them at the time they told me their decision, I said, okay, I'll give you a year. If at the end of this year, we haven't made improvements toward developing the program, I don't think I'll be here. Because I knew I was going to stagnate. I knew there'd be no progress. And I get very bored when things are stagnating and no progress is being made. So um, a year went by and no progress had been made. So I went in on my birthday, my 40th birthday, and I quit. Um, Again, yeah, yeah, it, it, that's right. Happy birthday to me. Just because I knew that position wasn't going anywhere. Luckily, my basement that I had been running as a hobby was actually making okay money kind of by at first by accident and then kind of growing as throughout that year, I started saying, what am I going to do? Um, and so I started kind of building it up and testing and modeling and collecting the data to see what this would be like. So once the year was up and no progress had been made to develop my department, that's when I was like, well, it looks like there's a way I can model this fish business and make it work. So mm -hmm. I quit my job. I think that's why, though, the focus on quality, it didn't come out of me looking at businesses and saying, like, what could I do to make a business? I was already doing something for fun that I was passionate about. And quality's always been very important to me. And so it was just natural to continue that. The other thing is I've worked at almost every level of this industry, like from the local mom and pop shop to the to the big suppliers um, on, on different sides, retail and back behind up the supply chain. And something that I always hated was how how fish were treated. I just hated mm. it. I loved working with the fish, but I saw the back end, what it was like for them and I thought this is horrible for the hobby because people are going to buy fish. They're going to be unsuccessful. They're, so they're going to think fish keeping is hard. It's not for me. They're going to stop. 
and then we lose a bunch of potential people that could be fish keepers. So it's yeah. hurting the hobby and the industry's hurting itself. It's like a snake eating its own tail by providing, because the supply chain doesn't provide healthy stock in general. Mm. I'm generalizing mm. here. There's some people that do a good job. So mm. those are the two things I think that came together when I decided to do this as a business. And I wasn't going to go work somewhere that I wasn't excited to work at, that wasn't motivating. And what motivates me is seeing people be successful and being good to seeing the fish be good, you know, seeing them be healthy and happy and all that. So that's a long answer, but I think it's the only way to really describe it. Yeah, it, it makes sense. Like I, I think there is, for lack of a better term, an old school methodology of, People buy fish, they die, they come back and buy more fish, and that's how my business oh. is going to generate income. As opposed yeah. to people are going to buy fish that are nice and healthy, they love that fish. Oh, I'm going to set up another aquarium because I found another fish that's tickled my fancy, and I'm going to buy it because I'm enjoying what I'm doing as opposed to I'm having to sink more money into something to replace what I've got. And, and I think there's very much a mind shift switch that is happening at the moment, which is a fantastic thing because there's more people caring about the fish that they're providing for people to try and get the most out of that for them and the people that are buying it and the end result. Yeah. I've literally heard people say that in this industry. Well, if they die, that's okay. They'll come back and buy more. It's like, yeah. no, they won't. Maybe they yeah. will once or twice, but yeah. then they're going to put the tank in the garage and like give up. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And it, like you said, it's the snake chasing its tail sort of scenario it's, it's not a sustainable way and it's not a mm -hmm. it's not good for anybody in, in the circle particularly the people that are buying it it's, it's yeah, it's, yeah it's a fantastic uh, hopefully a, a good change that's that's happening at the moment yeah, yeah. i'll go ahead john so i think if a business can engage with its customers the same way as one hobby is to another mm -hmm. uh, and try and lift each other up you know they lift you up because they're they're creating custom but ultimately you're helping them grow deeper into their hobby and understand their strengths and, and what part of the hobby they like, what part they don't like, and, and kind of encouraging them to learn whilst teaching them about proper fish care. That in itself is better for the, the entire hobby and ultimately the industry as well. Yeah, I think, I think there's, um, you know, there's, that's something that's out there. There's, not as much as it should be, but there's fish clubs. And I think with social media now, like Cam's doing it, I, I'm less familiar with you, John, but I don't know if you have social media outlets and you're doing it as well. I think we've done a good job of using social media to educate people. Um, mm -hmm. Now, <laughs> there's so much information, it's like drinking out of a fire hose. And sometimes it's not all good information. Like the problem is which of the information is good. It used to be, where do I find any information? Um, the one piece I think we've been able to do is figure out how to take a, a in, an industry that's working under norms that were set right after World War II, um, 1950s-ish, and, and say, this we've got to rethink this from the ground up. And mm. um, what do we really have to do to get people fish that are healthy? what does that mean? Okay. How much does that cost to do that? Okay. How much do we have to then charge for our fish? Okay. We're going to be expensive. How do we, will people pay that? 
will they see the difference? Will they notice the difference and be willing to do that? And what we've done by gradually starting small and gradually growing has been able to prove that model out. And mm -hmm. so far it's working pretty good. It's not a hundred percent. It's right around 1% of the fish we send out have problems. Um, but that means just about 99%. Some, some months it's a tiny bit less, some months it's a tiny bit better, but it's right around 99% over the last few years. Um, arrive alive and as reported to us by our customers do well for them. So that's, that's our most important statistic. That's the thing we track relentlessly. Every week I get live in front of YouTube and I tell people how we did. And if I'm lying, people can chime up in the chat and say, no, -uh, I lost 300 fish that I bought from him or whatever. I think that's and a brilliant approach. It really is. It, it forces us to do what we say we're doing. And every yeah. now and then something does happen. Like, you know, we, we have a soul crushing review that was just listed on the website a few hours ago. Um, you know, it's not 100 percent. But I'll take 99, like, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah, nothing's going to be perfect, and and it's that continuous learning and growing. So this is this is actually the reason this, and how can we adjust that for next time and hopefully minimize that again for going forward. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, if you're yeah. hitting a, a high 99 mark, that's that, that's great, and, and and again, it's providing that comfort and um, level of trust for your customers, knowing that they're going to be getting what they're paying for and and, and a nice healthy um, yeah. animal coming to them. Yeah. Yeah. So, sure. so far it's working. We're growing. Our revenues doubled every year. And, wow. um, the, even though we're scaling, we've still been able to maintain the quality and that's, that's the thing we have to, it's yeah. literally built into our business plan that if we don't keep up the quality, we will fail. Like it's, yeah. it's the foundation of how we, of all the financials that trickle down from there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's, but it's such a great way to work, man. It's so great to get up in the morning, be excited about what you're doing. It's so great to like, usually when we need an ego boost, we go to our website and read the reviews. Like every now and then there's one that crushes my soul, but generally it's like, oh, the teams we've had a hard week. Let's read some reviews. You know, it, mm -hmm. the work is paying off that kind of yeah. thing. So, yeah. Yeah. I think when you it's start, Sorry, you started on a small one and you've built your foundation around quality and that's what creates returning customers is your quality. So maintaining that, like you said, has to be the priority and whilst you scale and maintain that, nothing should really change apart from your revenue and on the way up. Yeah, the, the business model actually scales nicely. Um, we're, we're getting out of the, we're just at that tipping point of uh, getting to the point where we will be sustainable and we don't have to like nice. wonder every month, is everyone getting paid? You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> we're, we're getting there and it's, it's growing and we're right at that cusp of being to the point where it's like, okay, we're still a startup, but we know we're a sustainable startup for the next year let's say so yeah. um you're you're building that you're in currently at the moment that's a relatively recent build within sort of 18 months two years sort of scenario uh well we got in and started operating fully in august of last year so we haven't even been operating in here for a year i mean the yeah. build started earlier 
Um, but as all construction projects do, it took much longer than the contractor told us it would. And yeah. uh, we knew that would happen. We hoped it wouldn't, but we knew it would. And yeah. we got in, got in about June. We kind of had everything set up and started ordering some things and had the system running. And by August, we were stocked and ready to really go. Cool. Awesome. Can you explain your process from going from essentially a, a small basement fish room into the big wide world and how that's kind of happened and, and the process and the logic's all behind that, that sort of system? Yeah. So the basement started for funsies and yep. YouTube started for funsies too. I just, I live in a small town in Wyoming, which I don't know if you know from being from New, New Zealand or not, but that's like the least populous state in the in the entire nation. Um, I think there's around 500,000 people in the entire state, and it's a so big if, state. So if, if it makes you feel better, there's 50,000 people that live in my my city. So I yeah I understand. Yeah, I've got 30,000. All right, so good, <laughs> good. Y'all been there. Um, so there's not a big critical mass of fish keepers here. And where I moved from was a massive city. It was Los Angeles. And yeah. so 16 million people roughly. And there were a ton of fish clubs. And every week I could go to a different fish club meeting and hang out with fish nerds and go see all different shops during the week or whatever. And then I moved here. And it's been awesome. But I have very few people to interact with on the fishy front. And that's why I started the live stream. And I just missed fish geeks. And mm. so I, I started the basement fish room and the YouTube channel just for funsies. And then when I was like, I don't think I'm going to stay at this job if they don't make some changes, I started collecting data and started running the basement more like a business. So I could see if it could be successful. So during that year, while I was still employed, um, I, I started being very clear about costs and all, all these other things and all the all the data you need to, to run a business and collecting all of that on a Google spreadsheet. It was very sophisticated. <laughs> but I was successful at modeling my real costs, which I think is where most people fail. If you don't understand what it actually costs to run your business and therefore what it costs per unit of fish you're selling, there's no way to make smart decisions about how much you have to sell the fish for. And um, how few losses you can have with your customers to be sustainable at those prices and all these things. So I was, I was good enough to get that data and run it by some people that actually know finances and business, including I have a business partner and who's, you know, much better at modeling than I am. And it looked like this could work. So at that point I said, I wonder what would happen to these numbers if we expanded. So I, my, my wife generously let me move our cars out of our garage. And, um, <laughs> and that became a second little fish room for us. It had about 79 aquariums in it, all 40 gallon breeders. The basement was all 70, mostly 75 gallon aquariums, about 44 of those, um, a, a quarantine rack of 30 gallon breeders, um, and then a breeding rack of five and a half gallons, and then a couple odd and end odds and ends tanks, but it was mostly that. So we did that to see what impact that would have on the business. And the impact was fine. 
it, mm-hmm. it looked like the numbers would be good. So having that data, I felt comfortable saying, okay, we're building a specialized state-of-the-art kind of a first principles approach building specifically for fish. We're going to put all that time and resource in. We think that'll work based on our data. Still not a sure thing when we did that. Still not a 100% sure thing now. We are a startup still. But um, we knew what we wanted in the building, and we were able to customize it from the ground up, from the blueprints. So Hmm. that's been pretty cool. Cool. What's going on there? Um, Cool. So I've watched your build series of of that, and there was obviously some pretty important things that you wanted to do with the build of your room, um, taking the water from the local river, Mm-hmm. using it for your fish, recleaning it and putting it back and that sort of stuff, which again, I think falls well within your sustainability type of mindset and, and model. How did that process come about as far as was the consent hard? Was there a lot of loopholes you had to jump through? Um, yeah, was that it was an easy process? Was that because it doesn't sound like, at least from a New Zealand point of view, that would be an easy process to go through. Um, I wouldn't say it was easy, um, but I also wouldn't say it was impo- obviously not possible because we did it. Um, yeah. It was daunting until I built the relationships. So yeah. when I first went into it, I did not have a relationship with the Department of Environmental Quality or U.S. Fish and Wildlife or the uh, Army Corps of Engineers or the State Engineer's Office or th- these other you know, (laughs) be a month's (laughs) of bureaucracy that I'd have to work with. So I was like, how am I going to do this? So what I did is I went to them with my plan and I said, my goal is to make it so my fish have constant fresh flowing water. So they're as healthy as can be. Here's the problem and why I need that. And I laid that out and I said, while improving the local environment. And I went in and I said, here's the, I had a blueprint. I said, here's the equipment we will use to clean the water. Here's the, the technical specs on that equipment. Our equipment is like, it's like four times better than we need. Um, so our, like our UV sterilizers, for example, we're overkill like 4X. Yeah. So I went and I said, my concerns are your concerns my kids play in our local Creek. Like this is Mm. my house is just down the road and the Creek flows by it. And we, we play in it. We swim in it. We fish in it. Like, I don't want to screw that up. And I don't want to be the guy that accidentally uh, introduces a invasive species. And I don't want to be the guy that's dumping filth and sludge and pollution in the tank, in the, in the river. And, and I said, these are the things I'm trying to avoid. Here's, what we've engineered to make that possible. And in every case we had over-engineered. Um, so we, we already surpassed what they would want. That was, that made them want to play ball with us. Cause we didn't just go in and say, this is what I want to do. What's our minimum. What they're used to dealing with is people that want to do something and don't want to follow any regulation whatsoever and uh, don't even want to do the minimum. So when we went in and we're way above, 
I think they were like a sigh of relief kind of. And so that seemed to do the trick. Um, I had also, I invited them as we were building and things, I would invite them over and say, okay, here's where we're at in this. Look at the progress on this. Uh, the fear is that an invasive species could get in the creek or a pathogen or whatever. Um, so this is the unit we've installed in this way. What do you think? Does this seem sufficient? And, and every time we were already over and above. And so just by saying we're on your side, we have the same concerns and we're going to over engineer this and then including them, you know, throughout the process. Um, now we're friends, like literally um, the fish and wildlife reached out to me and I helped rewrite the laws because wow. they were in the process of rewriting the regulations and they were like, we need to know more about how a facility like yours operates because um, we want to make sure the regulations protect our wild, our, our habitats, but also make it possible to do business. And so I literally would get drafts and give them my notes and get them back and they would implement some and others they wouldn't. And, but we went back and forth. So that's awesome. I think when, when you can mm, work with them, because otherwise, yeah. um, and then the, they, they recently had like a, uh, a staff development day, uh, leadership training where all the employees in the state that weren't on duty at the time came to our town and uh, we hosted them and we gave them a tour. We showed them everything we were doing. So our approaches were transparent. We're open. We want to do a good job. And if you do that and your partners, instead of, uh, you know, being combative, I found that people that take those jobs generally take them because they care. And then mm -hmm. I think like after being in there for years and years and years, maybe they get, they get jaded, but that kernel of the mission that was important to them that made them want to do it in the first place. I'm thinking like fish and wildlife. You do that because you love hmm. fishing, fishing and you love hiking and you, yeah, you yeah. love your local environment. Um, I don't know what the, the, uh, what they call that in, in your neck of the woods, but we call it fish and wildlife and, um, yeah. Oh, department of agriculture, same thing you know, how to deal with them too. But when you go in and, and you're talking the same language, that little kernel, like that little ember gets some air blown on it and then they get excited. And that's what I experienced. Cool. Yeah. Wow. Fantastic. So my, my general understanding, and this is going to be very, very basic, is you draw your water from the local river, you filter it out, you then put it into your aquariums, you can then filter it back out again and pump it back into the river. Correct. There's obviously a lot more going on than that uh, with obviously UV filters and all that kind of stuff. So can you sort of run us through in, cycle through and then out the whole sort of process through that? Yes. Um, before I do, this is a working warehouse. There's people yeah. working on fish <laughs> tanks and smashing flats of blood worms to break them up and you pieces and stuff. So sorry, it's just, we're, yeah. it's, a, it's just another day here at the office for us. But yeah. um, so first off, I'll tell you the details, but I would refer people to Steenfot Aquatics. 
Bob Steenfaw is an affiliate of ours and he came uh, and viewed the facility and spent a few days with us. And he did a video detailing every, every aspect of that. So if you wanna not just hear me talk about it, but see it, um, I would refer you to, to his video. But basically what we do is uh, we built a reverse septic system, if you will, to collect the water. So our local river, we uh, divided it off and we dug down about 15 feet on the river into in like halfway to the, to the median of the river and then back about 80 feet wide and 40 feet of the bank, dug that down, filled it with gravel and filled it with permeable gravel and then filled it with these uh, pipes that are perforated and then covered it all up with about 15 feet of gravel and then returned all the topsoil and did the reclamation. Mm -hmm. um, the, the part of the creek that we are drawing from is very silty. It's been a problem part of the creek for the Department of Environmental Quality for quite some time. Earlier, before there was regulations and things, people did things just upstream from us and right around where we are that make it so that um, silt collects here. And it's always been a problem for them. So in doing that, we actually improved that. Uh, we made it a nice permeable rocky layer. We lined the bank with these big massive boulders because now we don't, because if you don't have stability, it's not a natural bank. It, okay. it's, it's something that had been man-made and hadn't been kept up and done. It was done poorly. So we stabilized the bank and everything. And then we returned the topsoil. So uh, they like us because we improved that whole section of the mm -hmm. river. All that water flows down into the bottom of the creek and through the bank through all this gravel that we put in there and goes into these pipes and is collected into a central spot, a, a big concrete, I call it a cistern, I suppose. Yeah. From there, it's pumped up to our building and then we filter out the sediment. So we remove all the sediment from the water that's coming in. Almost all of it. There are very, very, very fine particulates that get through. Um, and you'll see it in our water. Since we're using natural water, our water is not crystal clear. And mm -hmm. we have these little fine sediment in it. But it doesn't, it's not unhealthful for the fish. It's just, you know, unsightly perhaps. But anyway, so we filter out the vast majority of the sediment. And then the water goes through a descaling device. So it um, doesn't remove the calcium carbonate hardness. But calcium carbonate, what it looks like is like a dandelion head you got the central point and all these little spikes sticking out of it. All those spikes want to attach to things. And that's how you get hard water scaling. So if you get the bathtub ring or the toilet ring, or if you're an Aquarius and you get that hard water on your tanks, that's because all those little tiny spikes are sticking to stuff. And then all the other little molecules stick to those and you get your scaling. Uh, so we installed a descaler that doesn't remove the calcium carbonate. So our water is very hard, but it changes the structure of the crystal so instead of that spiky thing it's more like a smooth grain of rice it's this smooth little oval yeah. so then it doesn't stick to stuff you still have the hardness in your aquariums but you don't get nearly as much scaling so it goes through that after that it goes through um and i i might be getting the order wrong i think after that it goes through two massive uh uh carbon reactors 
so that we can remove any chemicals. So if someone upstream from us was fertilizing their lawn, spraying Roundup or something, and that got in the water or whatever, we remove that. And then it goes through a, a, a massive UV sterilizer. It might go through the sterilization first, but I don't think it does. No, it goes through the carbon filters first, yeah. Then after that, it goes through something called an economizer or a heat exchanger. The idea there is how can we heat the water from our local temperate creek to tropical fish temperatures without mm -hmm. using a whole bunch of energy, without burning a ton of gas or using a lot of electricity. And so we do that through this economizer. And it looks kind of like if you open it up, it looks kind of like the radiator of your car. Mm -hmm. The cold water goes through certain pathways and the warm water that leaves our aquariums goes through certain pathways and it transfers the heat from the water that's exiting our aquariums into that cold creek water and naturally warms it up. So it might be 32 degrees out at the creek and it might leave that exchanger at uh, somewhere around 70 degrees, maybe 65 if, if we need to clean the, the system or something. So we're able to raise the temperature without using any energy, which is awesome. Mm. But there so, is uh, Oh, go ahead. I'm assuming that then the water that's warm going out then cools down at the same time on its way back, correct. back out? Yeah, yeah correct. correct. So, so one thing that the Department of Environmental Quality was concerned about is they don't want hot water going to the local creek. It's, yeah. a, it's a mountain stream, and there's already problems with it getting too hot because, again, back, back in the day, the stream going through the city in certain parts, they didn't do a good job when they altered it, and so it got shallow and slow, and it gets overheated in those sections. Um, so they're very concerned about the water being too hot. So that cools the water back down before it goes outside. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and then, then we have a couple uh, boilers that heat the water, the, the deficit there, because we heat the water to 79 degrees. So um, whatever the deficit is after the heat exchanger gets heated there. Then it goes through a massive pipe that's meant to help remove dissolved gases, because when you heat cold water, you suddenly create an environment where all those saturated gases are let loose and you get oversaturated water and that gives your fish the bends or gas bubble disease. So we, we pass it through this apparatus that, that we hope helps with that. We installed that and it wasn't 100% successful, but that's why that's there. Um, after that, it goes to each individual aquarium gets its own feed. So can I actually show you? So I don't know if you can see behind me, there's a couple pipes. This one right mm -hmm. here that's a little dirtier because it has algae growing in it is a quarter inch water pipe. That's the pipe that comes down and feeds fresh water into this aquarium. Mm -hmm. um, and then the others are airlines or pipes going to other aquariums. And then on the other side, there's a bulkhead that it drains from. So the, the water goes into the tank and then it goes to the other side and leaves the tank. So it's constantly flowing through. When the water leaves the um, aquariums, it goes to a cistern that's under our, our, our building. It's under the concrete floor of our building where it's collected. Then it's pumped into a new set of filters to remove our sediment and to make sure like if, if some fish laid some eggs or whatever, or there's baby fish, they don't get out into the local creek. And then mm -hmm. after that, it also goes through the UV sterilizers and gets nuked. So that's... There's two UV sterilizers, one for incoming water, one for outgoing water. Um, then it gets cooled down like we discussed. 
and return back to the creek. So that's the basic, uh, yeah. that's the basic setup. So is, is water going in and out 24 hours a day? Or are you just on yeah. a, yeah, 24 so seven, mm -hmm. always running. Our, our permit is for a million gallons a day, 750 gallons a minute. Um, yeah. we don't need all that right now, but, um, we basically are running it at half capacity because we have plans to double the size of our building. So we, we didn't want to read engineer everything knowing we wanted to yeah. expand. We built, um, overbuilt. Yeah. <clears throat> so you mentioned like fish eggs and baby fish and stuff like, is that a, is that a common thing? Do you, you catch them quite often on the way out or is that not that common? Um, well, we have uh, strainers on our bulkheads that prevent mm -hmm. some of that. And we have, I don't have one with me, but if we are expecting baby fish or if there's shrimp in the tanks or certain species of fish that are going to throw guppies, um, yep. then we'll put a sponge over the strainer. And so yep. we, we prevent oh most of that, but, but occasionally something is caught in the filter. And that's what it's there for, yeah. just yeah. as a redundancy thing. Mm -hmm. Well, and then and, not to even mention the UV sterilizer that would, you know, get rid of them. <laughs> toast yeah. things if something could get through that, which I'd yeah. be amazed. Have you noticed downstream any improvements outside in the creek or is it still looking the same or with this? Yeah. This sparse, yeah is, actually, it, is it flourishing, so to speak? I should take a video of this. So the first thing we did was we had a pair of Canadian geese come and make a home out here. So... Mm -hmm that's pretty cool. Um, and then the second thing is, um, I go out and kind of walk the, the creek sometimes just to relax and right at our outlet where the water leaves. So we built a little artificial stream. The water isn't piped straight to the river. We built this little artificial stream, uh, like a Rocky riprap mm -hmm. that the water has to flow through. So it, um, it gets reoxygen. It's already oxygenated, but if it needed to, it could get reoxygenated. It could get temperature stable and all that. We already do that beforehand, but it goes down this whole little artificial creek before it goes to the river. And it was really fun because my last time I was out walking just a couple of days ago, there were all these little baby fish in the river facing up, like waiting for, I don't know, food to come down or uh, little bugs that are growing on the algae and our riprap come down or whatever. So there's this whole little population of baby fish right at our outflow. A anytime mm -hmm. there's a side channel that enters into a river, you get little populations like, like that. And so that was really fun. I don't know what kind they are yet. Um, I'll, I'll get a dip net and, and see at some point, but um, probably baby trout would be my guess. Yeah. Cool. Um, so you've, you briefly discussed, um, you know, how you started your YouTube channel for just for a bit of fun and that kind of thing. How has that evolved for you? And obviously it's benefited your business, but that kind of transition from just doing this from fun to possibly taking this a bit more serious to help everything sort of work and evolve together. I treat the live streams as if I'm talking to uh, my friends at a fish club. So I mean, I do talk about the business, but I've never tried to be like, <clears throat> now I'm professional. Yeah. You know, I, I can't do that. So yeah. I, like if you watch some of my early streams before we 
moved here or whatever early on and watch my current streams, I think you'll see, besides me being a little more comfortable doing them, because now I have more experience with it, besides that, I think you'll see not much change, honestly. Um, there are a few changes. So I now do a shipping report every week. I start off every live stream telling people how successful we were shipping that week because we're trying to bake integrity and transparency into our business model. We make a lot of lofty claims saying that 99% of the fish on average that we send to our customers arrive in good shape and uh, healthy and look like they're going to do well. And as reported from our customers, you know, transition well, mm -hmm. that's a big claim. The industry mm. number is way less. So to say something like that, if I heard someone say that, I'd be like, yeah, right. Like you're just making, you know, you're saying stuff that sounds good. And I've worked at places that do things like that. And so I was like, if we are successful at this, how do we make sure that people can actually trust what we're saying? And transparency is the answer we came up with. So I literally tell people, what our percentage was. And sometimes I'll literally tell people, here's the fish that were lost this week. I used to do every fish that was lost every week. But now that we've grown to the point we're shipping so many fish, that would just be, you know, the percentage is still the same, but the number is higher because we ship yeah. so many more. And I'm like, once you get to like, I don't know, over three fish, it starts just sounding horrible. Mm. <laughs> so, so we do the percentage now. Um, I say, here's where we were at for successful shipping last week. And here's our percentage this week. Um, this is our goal is 99%. Here's where we're at in relation to that. Mm -hmm. So, um, but the reason we do that is because literally I'm live and literally at any time anyone could chime in and say, um, actually I lost a ton of fish that you sent me and I told you about it and you are, you know, that can't be reflected in this or whatever. And so we put ourselves out there and, mm. um, that is one big difference. We, we chose to do that as a business to keep ourselves honest. And so that people can trust what we're saying, because we needed some way to, like I said, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't believe it if someone told me that. I would need them to be transparent in a public way where anyone could refute what they were saying in order to have any confidence in what they were saying. So that's why we do that. Um, the other thing we do is like a giveaway. So every week there's a giveaway. This last week it was a group of like gold Madaka rice fish because it's getting warmer in the northern hemisphere and uh, we're going into our little patio pond season. So there's a couple things like that. But those are the only real changes we've, I think, implemented to make it kind of businessy. Really, what we want to do is just talk to people about fish, tell people any exciting things that are happening with the business, mm -hmm. uh, use it as a form for transparency, and then just get to questions and comments. Like, does someone need help? Does someone have a question about something? Is you know, and interact with our customers. Not being a, a you know, being an online store, it's a little different. It's, you know, mom and pop brick and mortar, they're, they're awesome because you can walk in and talk to the person if you have a question or whatever. 
you, you get a real relationship mm. built because you interact with them often enough. And now it's not just customer and proprietor. It's you know each other a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is as close as I can get to that being an online business, being live every week. So that's the big change on the live streams. The videos themselves have not changed as much as they should. Um, meaning we're, our YouTube game has a lot that could be improved. Um, production could be, production values could be better. Um, I'm not a great cameraman. I like, there's still a lot there. We, we've brought some people on to help and they're, they're making positive changes. Uh, we had a meeting actually this week about how to make it even better. But mm -hmm. yeah, I would say there's a long way to go on the YouTube channel. And that's borne out, I think, by the fact that we're, I don't know, somewhere just shy, I think, of 30,000 subscribers or something after doing this for years. <laughs> you know, where other channels yeah. could grow much faster if they're optimizing for YouTube. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that is a change we should make for the benefit of the business, just because if we can get a larger channel, then that that will help the business. So, yeah. And do you think that your um, experience working in theater um, from your your college and uni days will have an impact on how that folds out, or is that a, a time yeah. long gone in the past now? I think there's a couple of advantages it gives me. One is I'm very comfortable in front of a camera. I can be live in front of a stadium full of people and I would not feel weird about it. Um, I can be live in front of the camera, knowing, not knowing how many people are watching and not feel weird about it at all. Mm -hmm. So I'm very comfortable with that. The other thing is I have a sense of pacing and I have a sense, um, like on the live streams, you'll notice there's hardly ever any dead air. Um, Cause I have a sense of what, what loses an audience. Now I'm not optimizing for that completely because sometimes I'm like, man, I just need to get a video out. In fact, a lot of times, like I'm running a scaling startup, right? So <laughs> time to go make the video. A lot of times it's that, but, but I kind of, I know story. Um, I know about, boredom there's a cardinal rule that my mentor in theater used to have which is thou shalt not bore um and that has a lot to do with pacing and things like that so on the live stream i think i do a decent job of that i think there's a long way to go in the videos themselves because that's not me just talking that's like i have to worry about the shot and the camera and the, all this and um it's not me live in real time which is theater it's something you're going to chop together later, which is not something that's as intuitive for me. Mm -hmm. It must be, yeah, definitely will make it easier then. And hopefully when you start making these changes, you see the impact that you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so a couple of things that came up just before when you were talking you you don't have any walk-in facility whatsoever. You're solely 100% online. Is that correct? No, we have we have local folks that we service. Yeah. Um, but um, on shipping and packing days, we don't let people in. And the yeah. reason is, like, we're going hard from morning till the deadline when we have to get those packages out to UPS. And if someone came by and we were to, you know, 
be hospitable <laughs> yeah. as you want to be, we could not do it on those days. So, um, yeah, we definitely don't do anything like that on packing and shipping days. So that means Sunday through Wednesdays out. So usually when customers that are local want to come, and again, it's a very small town. It's a town of 18,000 where I'm at. And uh, so there aren't that many fish keepers, but we, we know most of them and they kind of know when to get. Yeah. It's like if I was in a big city, there would be signage with all these explanations. This is a small community. Everyone just knows, you know. Yeah. So yeah. they give it, give it just a win. Uh, and so the other thing that came up with is when you're talking about your success rate and stuff, do you follow up with your customers after you've, you know, you've sent your package of fish out, you've seen that it's arrived. How do you follow that up? How do you get your statistics of everything's been okay yeah. a couple of weeks down the track and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Let me, um, I don't have one at hand, but there's an insert we put in the box that we ship your fish in and it says, um, you know, thanks for trusting us. And if there's, here's our guarantee. And also, please let us know if there's any problems. Here's how to get a hold of us. Um, yeah. You know, tell us, we want to hear the good, but especially the bad is how it's worded. Yeah. It's, um, that's how you improve. It's this little thing. This goes in every, every box. And it's mm -hmm. just, it's just that. Now, something that we have not yet implemented um, is uh, a follow-up to that, maybe two weeks post, saying, how's everything going? That's something right now that I don't think is hugely necessary because our um, relationship with most of our customers is fairly tight. And we interact with most of our with a lot of our customer base on youtube but it is getting to the point as we grow that now a significant number of people are coming to the store who have never heard of us before they just we popped up on google oh, and yeah. um so we are in the process and we've implemented some changes but we're in the process of trying to figure out if someone comes and lands on our website and that's their first exposure to us ever, they never heard of us any other way. Um, how do we best care for those people? So we do need to make some changes. We have a list of changes to make. We've already implemented a few, but uh, the pile of changes to make is probably at this point, like 15 pages of fine print. And so there's a lot to do to get there. But we, we try to say, well, we do say in every box we send out, if you have a problem, let us know. We're here to help. Um, mm -hmm. We want to hear about the problems. And we emphasize that in our messaging. So do you base your stats on if, instead, not a case of confirming every delivery is good, but more a case of when you find out something didn't go well? you build just statistics around that factor yeah yeah the stats are based on problems yeah so um if someone reports a problem that dings our statistic that's how we calculate that statistic mm -hmm. at that some point sense. we'll have a running counter on the website where um we've, we've talked about this idea of someone getting an email uh, when they receive their fish where they can say 
if there was any problem, say they ordered 10 fish and let's say there was one problem, um, then there was a spot they could put that. Mm-hmm. And then that would automatically go to the front page of our web page in like a, a real time kind of ticker type thing. Um, so that's something that we've thought about. Some other ways we need to do it. Every, every time we do it, though, we have to code that. We, um, my business partner is a, is a software engineer and has built the, oh, yeah, he's built the, uh, the whole platform from scratch. It's all his own coding. And so there are a million improvements we need to make to that. And we have to be really judicious in which ones we do because coding is a time intensive operation. And so um, sometimes the focus is making operations more efficient. Sometimes Mm -hmm. the focus is helping generate more sales. Sometimes the focus is on customer care. There's, there's all these different aspects of the business and we kind of have to be selective in which ones we can do at any given moment. Yeah. Yeah. I totally understand that. Um, something that's always intrigued me is the way that you, you pack and send your fish. Um, how has that evolved to where you are? Because over here, um, you know, you, you normal standard fish bag, X amount of water, seal it off and away you go. Is it, is it quite a common practice over in America for the smaller bags or is that something you've developed yourself? And if it is yeah. you've developed, how has that process come about? Yeah, there's... Um... I've seen one other company that does it similar, not quite the same. Um, But the reason that developed was simply because we noticed that if there were multiple fish in a bag, this was back when I was just doing this as a hobby. Mm -hmm. Um, If there's multiple fish in a bag and one dies, it's likely to poison the other fish in the bag because the decaying body, you know, releases all kinds of yucky stuff into the water. That's what it does. And so when we build this mission or build this company, it was, it's mission-based. It's, uh, there's lots of ways to state it. My favorite way to state it is how do we be the store a fish would choose to go to if it could choose which fish store it ended up at? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, I think, a good way to state it. It kind of puts the customer care side to the side. But I think the focus is on the fish, really, because if the customer gets good fish, then suddenly most of your customer care problems are taken care of. So uh, Johnny's our customer care lead. uh, New title, Johnny. (laughs) He's right here. Um, But, uh, you know, he does a great job with, with customer care. But it's really about the fish. And so from first principles, we just thought, what are all the things that we hate when we get fish? Or what are the problems that other hobbies have had when I've sent them fish? Okay, let's not do the things we hate. Let's do the things we like. Now, looking at that, what can we improve from the first principles approach to give every fish we send the highest likelihood of arriving, you know, fat and sassy, as we like to say? Okay. What all has to happen to make that the highest likelihood possible? One of the things was one fish per bag. That way, if there's a problem with another fish in the same bag, it doesn't affect. You don't get that chain reaction where every fish in the bag ends up dying 
because one died early on in transit. So, um, doesn't matter what size fish they are, they all just... Yep, yep. even even chili rasboras, yep, everything. And so... The, the one exception is shrimp. We'll put up to four shrimp in one bag, like neocaridine or whatever, because we've yep. literally... I want to say we've never lost a shrimp. Is, is that a true statement? I'm checking with Johnny. He's telling me, no, I'm wrong. Okay. <laughs> One out of a thousand, he's saying. Okay, so so shrimp don't seem to have the same uh, as much of an issue. So yeah. we'll do shrimp together and we'll do snails together. But fish are always individually backed. And that's probably because I don't know as much about shrimp and snails. Like maybe I'll find that's the totally wrong way to do it. I, fish I know how to do, but shrimp and snails I'm fairly new to. That's not my forte. I think with snails, snails are quite robust, um, and they—I mean—they need very little water, mm-hmm. really. Um, so you can kind of—I've had five or six come through in one bag at one point. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, they're not too bad. Um, when you say that you send it like Tillerisbora, for example, being a really small fish, and maybe somebody's bought half a dozen of them, when you are putting them in individual bags, are you doing small bags? Quite small bags. How small? Yeah, would you put? yeah. They're uh, they're about four inches tall when okay. they're all sealed up and full of air. So four and a half inches tall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, which is plenty of water for a small fish. Yeah, definitely. Um, yep. And then we have larger bags for bigger fish. It just scales up, but every fish is sent individually backed. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that that, that was my next question for the those that sort of haven't seen your shipping process in your bags, uh, the size of them is quite significantly smaller than I believe, at least mm-hmm. in New Zealand, the people, the people used. Um, oh, yeah, small, for, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah I'm assuming that came about for space reasons in the box, but also practical reasons you've worked out they don't need five-litre bags for one fish, so to speak. Yeah, if you're only shipping one small fish, yeah, you just don't need that much water. Like, um, if you were taking a standard bag and doing what most people do, and which is like on the industry side, at least uh, adding lots of fish to it, um, you would end up with a lot less water per fish. So, Mm. I mean, depending on how densely you pack, but I'm thinking of the industry side, how I get fish, um, or used to get fish before I made changes with my suppliers. So. Yeah, what we found after shipping, I don't know how many fish over the last several years and doing it one fish per bag, is that the survival rate's just a lot higher. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, the data says, despite what intuition might say, the data says that's the way to go. So that's what we do. Yeah. And do you have a process pre pre-sending for the fish or order all 10 metros, 10 go out, get bagged up? Or how does that, that work for you as well? It's a two-day process. So um, let's say I was going to send a fish to you tomorrow, which I wouldn't mm-hmm. do because it's Friday in the weekend. But let's say it's Monday. Yeah. And I'm going to send a fish yeah. to you. You're going to get it Tuesday. Um, Monday, we would we have sh- special shipping water solution, which I, I can tell you about. It's nothing secret. So here's a bag. Mm-hmm. This little, little travel pod, my hand for scale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> face i don't know about four and a half inches um 
So we would put, we would fill a whole bunch of bags. They're 12 inches tall when they start. So we fill a bunch of bags with water. Um, then we go around, collect all the fish that are going out that the next day, put them in the bag. The reason we do that is because we want to clear their, their uh, digestive tract. We want them to poop out all the nasty stuff before we send them to a customer. So if you just stop feeding a tank of fish, that doesn't do the trick because a lot of fish will eat detritus and algae and biofilm and their own poop sometimes, right? So um, putting them in a bag like this, there's really nothing to eat. And so that's the most successful way we've found to clear their GI tract out before we ship them. The reason we do that is in case of, well, twofold. First, we don't want a customer to receive a poopy bag. That's just gross. But second is, let's say I ship them to you on Monday. You're supposed to get them Tuesday, but there's a delay. Let's say for some reason an airplane breaks down or a conveyor belt at the, at the a UPS breaks down. And very occasionally things like this do happen. If I didn't clean the fish first, it's going to die. Odds are that it's not going to last that long in a bag full of, uh, you know, gross organic waste. So we, we, a lot of things we do are like, what if things don't go well? How can we minimize problems? We only control what happens before we hand the fish to the carrier. Mm -hmm. If something goes wrong on the carrier's side, um, let's make sure we've done everything we can to make sure that the fish will still be okay. Cause we don't control once they're out of our hands, what happens. Um, so we clean it, them all out. And then we take that 12 inch bag. We seal it at about four and a half inches, fill it with air and everything, take the top half, make a second bag and double seal it. So this is two bags. There's an inner bag and an outer bag, both sealed. Um, that way, if the inner bag leaked, the, the fish is going to be fine. It, it'll still hold the water and it won't leak all over every other package surrounding our box of fish that we're sending. So that's the basic process. Collect them, fast them, uh, change the water. So we do a 100% water change, then seal them up, air them up and, and send them out. My my initial thought when watching and hearing all of that prior to that was with pre-catching them and then bagging them stressed the fish, but obviously with your success rate of them arriving in pristine great condition, that's not really too much of a consideration in, in that process. The the having yeah. the clean water on dispatch and then arrival is more significant than the potential bit of stress that happens being in the bag for a little while. Your thought is a good one. And it's the same thought I had early on before I started doing that. So um, I was probably sending fish for 25 years, 24 years before I did it that way. And the same reasoning, like the less mm. time in the bag, the better for the fish, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, that's true. Being in the bag more time, you know, it's probably, it it's, has to be stressful on the fish the more time it's in the bag. But what I found is, Clean water and a little stress trumps dirty water and, and a lot of stress and, and less stress because that automatically increases yeah. all kinds of problems for the fish. So the data tells me no matter what I think about stress, the fish tell us when we collect the data what the best way to do it is. 
And mm. so that's why we do that. But, mm. but you're right. It's like less handling, less stressful. Amen. Yeah. yeah. Until the repercussions of doing it that way kick in. Yeah. 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 And in the day, numbers don't lie. Like it's, it's pretty hard that's to argue with factual statistics. If it's working <laughs> ridiculously well, it's working ridiculously yeah. well. That's, yeah. that's what we've, that's what we've based our company on. This is the yeah. goal. Let's try. We think this is the best way to do that. We try it. What are the numbers? Okay. Can we yeah. think of a way to do it better? What tweak can we make? We do some AB testing as well. Like we have a video out of uh, testing the best way to ship snails where we did uh, four different setups mm. with different variables and gave it a go and saw which one worked best. Um, yeah. There's all kinds of that going on here. Um, not only just on the best way to care for fish and get fish to our customers in good ways, but also how to be efficient as a business, how to uh, every aspect of the business. We try to be data driven mm -hmm. just because I'm biased and I have perceptions and I can't tell you the number of the times they've been proved wrong. So um, just earlier before you were talking about when you're talking about your shipping fish and how you got your suppliers to change, or maybe you're adapted some supplier. Uh -huh. what, what, what was that? How does that sort of work? And, and is that a, um, have you gotten to change the methodology for you or just found better people? So this is part of something that's very exciting for me because my goal, what we want to do is change the industry. We want to create a better, more humane industry at large. And, we're a small shop. And so it's exciting to me to see that we are able to make some impact on that, even as small as we are. Um, as we grow, once you have, the more buying power you have, the more changes you can force in an industry. But yeah. we're already at the point we're making a change. So a couple things. First off, it's, there are other suppliers that care. They got into it because they like fish maybe they just need a reminder of that. And maybe when you come to them and say, look, this packing density is horrible for the fish. If I was willing to pay extra to have 10 fish in a bag instead of 200 or whatever it is, but I'm thinking of guppies specifically, like it's not uncommon mm -hmm. to have 200 guppies in one bag. If you only put 10 in the bag, what would that cost? I'm willing to pay it. And a lot of them, if you're willing, not, I shouldn't say that, not a lot of them. <laughs> Often they're so tied to the way they operate that, you know, not everyone's willing to do this, but they know that it's better for fish not to be crowded. And there are certain suppliers mm -hmm. you can find that will say, I'll do that for you. So we pay the extra and we do that. So it's just been, some of it's just been, weeding out suppliers that don't care enough to um to improve things for the fish even though we're willing to pay more and there's there's actually a lot of those so that's that's a big part of it there are also other suppliers that um just contact us and come out of the woodwork because they know our mission they know what we're trying to do and it's what they want as well. And so we're, we're, we've, we found a couple people that basically found us. 
and want to work with a company like that. So there's, there's different ways we find those suppliers. A lot of it is just by trying someone and it's like, well, nope. <laughs> and until you find people that do a good job, but, um, but what we want to get to is a point where the fish are treated humanely at all aspects of the supply chain. And the more impact we can have on that, the more our mission will be fulfilled. And we're having a small impact. We've got a long way to go, though. So we've, we've had a weak question from the comments, and I think it's directed at you and what potential rainbow fish uh, you may be able to, to help this customer with. So what, what rainbow fish do you currently have, and what would you be thinking? Let's see here. Is, is the comment just, oh, there it is. It's big right on the front. Yep. <laughs> okay, I was like, which one? Oh, bam, it's in my face there. <laughs> Crypt Keeper, I just got a gift card at BCA, BCAS for Dan's Fish, Buck County Aquarium Society, but I cannot decide which rainbow fish I want to order. Well, that's a problem because I think we carry like over 40 species, if I'm correct, something <laughs> like that. I think we usually wow. have between 40 and 60 species of rainbow fish. That's, that's one of the species we really like. Um, I don't know exactly how many we have right now. It might be a little less. But um, so my question for that would be, what size tank do you have and what do you like? So let me give you a few options. Let's assume you have a, a big tank. It's, it's, I don't know, six foot long, 125 gallon aquarium. Now you can keep even the big glossolepis species without any problem. Um, do you like big finnage? Like, like, do you really like a crown tail betta? If that's the kind of thing you like, I'd go with glossolepis, probably a red dragon or green dragon, which is glossolepis wanamensis, or um, um, I'm blanking on the other one. It'll come to me in a little bit. Um, those are large fish. The Wanamensis gets like an emerald green color. The red dragon, Multisquamata, gets, uh, gets a nice red color. But they have these beautiful extended uh, fin rays on the uh, anal fin especially, but some of the other fins as well. So if impressive finnage is important to you, and size is no consideration, if you can handle a fish that's going to grow to six, seven inches or so, um, Glossolepis are awesome. Chilotherina are great. Um, if you did those, which one would I? It's hard to suggest because they're all so beautiful. But Chilotherina alani wapoga is one of the most beautiful rainbow fish out there. They're going to get four to six, four to five inches, I'm going to say. Four and a half, call it. And uh, very energetic swimmers. All rainbow fish are pretty energetic swimmers, but the Chilotherina take the cake. They're they're super fast. They're like turbo jets. So they like a lot of swimming space, even though they're a smaller fish. But if you really like the color of those and you want some, then those could go in your six foot tank. You could probably get them in a four foot as well. But I think in a six foot, they would really, you could get so much more enjoyment out of them. Um, let's say you have a smaller tank or you like smaller fish, then I would go for, and Kalitawa is hard to go wrong with. <laughs> Melanotania species Kalitawa is one of the most beautiful rainbow fish ever. And it only grows to two, two and a half inches ish, I will say. So it's a miniature fish. You can 
therefore keep them in a smaller tank. Uh, something with maybe even a 20 long with a three foot footprint might be okay. Uh, large is always better for almost any fish, but they don't get massive and their colors are amazing. And if you like breeding fish, they're new enough that and pretty enough that you'll, you'll have a ready market for them. So if your goal is breeding, your local fish store will probably want them. A couple other smaller species that I really like. One is uh, Melanotania soloensis from Skull Creek. I really like the pinstripes. I really like the uh, nice yellow on black margins. And they're going to get two and a half to three inches, so not too big. Kamaka, nice, beautiful blue rainbow fish with a bright white blaze on the males. If you like blue, those are awesome. And those aren't going to get over... I'm going to say three and a half inches ish, maybe slightly bigger. So those are some options. It's really though, it's kind of what color do you like? What finish do you like? And how much tank space do you have? Care for rainbow fish is pretty much the same across the board. Mm -hmm. So what is it about rainbows uh, that you like to go for then? Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, gents. <laughs> no, what I was going to say is obviously you like rainbow fish. Um, is there a reason for it, or is it just the variety, the color, and, and the simplicity of keeping them? I think I like rainbow fish because I also really like killifish, and there's a lot of similarities in the rainbow fish hobby and the killifish hobby. My first love was killifish. That's right. what really got. Well, I liked fish, but that, that's the first group that I really really fell in love with and bred as a, as a kid and the the passion remains to this day mm -hmm. killifish are mop spawners like rainbow fish there's all kinds of collection points in different localities that you want to keep pure because they might end up being a new species or just the color and patterns and things are so different that you don't want to mix them because you'll lose mm -hmm. that natural diversity so killifish hobbyists and rainbow fish hobbyists understand each other's world like that scientific names are the norm most of these don't have common names same with killifish so i just felt right at home with rainbow fish yeah. and i found a, a an excellent breeder there's a gentleman that is an expert on rainbow fish he goes out and collects them all the time um, he's written several articles in amazonas magazine on rainbow fish and collected many many species and his goal is to preserve them so when he finds a new species or a new population uh, he will breed it and keep the, the strain pure and distribute them. So I'm lucky enough to, uh, to know that person and be able to source fish from them. And that's made it possible for me to get all kinds of rainbow fish of good quality. Because unfortunately, in the industry at large, a lot of them have been hybridized and the lines have been muddied because I don't know exactly why. They just have. And so... Um, once I found that guy, I was like, I'm getting them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite right. Um, so I think you're quite spoiled for choice with the amount that you have, like all those names you're rattling off as I have. Yeah, none of them are here, unfortunately. So mm. I think rainbows are a very beautiful fish. Um, and when they get to their full mature size, they're a, they're a gorgeous fish to be, to mm. have. But yeah, just yeah, for here, at least the lack of them is, is a real problem for us. Yeah, rainbow fish, they, I mean, they look like brown or silver darts until they don't. Like, 
takes them a little while, but once they mature yeah. and the color comes in, then it's like, oh, that was worth the wait. Yeah. Man, that's too bad yeah. though. Even in New Zealand, you have trouble getting them, huh? Even though Australia and Papua are so close. Yeah, yeah, we, we only have about half a dozen or so species here. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. There's, uh, <laughs> oh, there's so many neat ones. The world yeah. of rainbow fish out there. Mm -hmm. cool. uh, uh, so, a... when you get new new stock into your into your facility, what's what's your process for that? Because I know you. You hold them all back for a couple of weeks and, and make sure everything's tickety-boo. So how does that process work for you? First of all, tickety-boo is one of my favorite sayings of all time. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you don't hear that a lot in the States. I have to listen to like uh, Australian TV shows to hear it. So that that was awesome. Um, it's back here in the UK as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think I last heard it on an Australian show called Rake about this lawyer that's completely uh, <laughs> dysfunctional. But anyway, um, so what we do for the tickety booness is every fish is quarantined for at least two weeks. Sometimes it takes longer. We we literally have fish that we've had for I don't know. I'm going to say three months that we're still quarantining. It just depends on the fish and how it comes in. Um, but our basic thing is we will never sell a fish until we think it's gonna do well for the customer. Um, if, I if we wouldn't be delighted to receive the fish, we don't sell it. Now, that being said, every now and then something slips through the cracks, uh, just, just very occasionally. So we work really hard though to make sure that doesn't happen. One way we work for that is two weeks quarantine minimum. And what I have found is that within two weeks, you'll usually see an issue. If the fish has something that it's, that's hiding, like some kind of issue that's hiding within it, um, the stress of shipping the fish to me could allow that to take hold and, and become a problem health-wise for the fish. Usually that happens within two weeks. So mm. that's why it's two weeks. Just from, just from observing lots and lots of fish over lots and lots of years, I would notice that within that time frame, things would manifest. So almost everything does. If they've gone through two weeks and there's no problems, then we're comfortable selling them. But if there are problems, then we have a medicine cabinet and we have an aquatic veterinarian on retainer. And uh, we do our very best with all the resources we have to take care of the fish. And sometimes we're successful and sometimes we can, you know, we, we can't figure it out. Even with the help of a veterinarian, sometimes we don't know. So um, that's one of the things we focus the most on. And one of the things that's most frustrating about being in this industry or the hobby is fish health. And the reason is fish medicine is still in its infant stage. Um, there are great aquatic vets out there, but the entire practice of aquatic veterinary medicine is a baby and mm. there's a lot to mm. learn. So even when you draw on the experts, they can only help so much. So, but that's, that's the one, that's part of this hobby where I, in this industry where I can't, I'm just excited every time there's an improvement, every time there's a discovery, every time there's a new medicine or procedure or 
bit of knowledge because I think we can all agree that's one huge weakness for the entire yeah. fish keeping world. But we do our best. Um, we know our suppliers pretty well. And so we generally have an idea, not always, but an idea of, okay, if we get this fish from this supplier, we're going to treat for this because mm -hmm. there's this track record of yeah. it. We're just going to preemptively prevent that. But barring that, we just focus on observation. And if everything's tickety-boo, then uh, we... We just observe for the couple of weeks and, and go ahead and send them out. So we kind of try to stay in touch with the fish and make the judgments that way. Mm -hmm. yeah. do, do you think that um, with the government, you know, governing bodies that look over this industry, do you think um, with the shift towards sustainability and, and, and kind of regulating down on a lot of species is causing a negative effect on the hobby? Um, especially in the UK, we've got a lot of problems where we can't get certain medicines that you guys get over there, mm -hmm. uh, and can will be the same. Um, there's certain like antibiotics for fish that we're not allowed to use um, mm -hmm. that you guys have access to. But do you, do you find that's something that's changing um, as more more's learned, or, you know, as we learn more about the medicine? Is there is a medicine? I'm going on here, but is there some medicines that you're you're not able to use now that you used to be able to use, or, or is it still just a, a natural progression? Uh, you can get them. I know a guy. No, <laughs> <laughs> I know a guy as well, but <laughs> he's on the corner in a trench coat. I'll introduce you. No, um, yeah. Um, so here's what what I think is happening. I think that we're at this interesting crossroads right now where. Um, aquatic medicine is gradually learning and growing. And as that's happening, our um, access to antibiotics and things is going down. Mm -hmm. It's just like what happened before with dogs and cats. There used to be a time when you could go to your local pharmacist and get what you needed to take care of your dog or cat. Um, and then veterinary medicine became more of a thing and became more sophisticated and regulation was passed um, that made it, you had to go to a vet pretty much to get a lot of these products. I think we're just seeing that shift right now with fish. I think we're just a few decades behind what's happened to every other pet species. Whether mm. it's a good thing or not, I don't know. Um, ultimately, if we can have veterinarians who have a good knowledge base and are, are available and fish medicine progresses to the point where, where they're uh, able to really help most of the time, then that's a positive in a way because then we don't have to just shotgun medicines and say, or, or you know, get, it, get a medicine ID'd in a Facebook group or something. Mm. You know, we're really bad about treating. I think half the time we're treating, we're not, we don't even know what we're treating. Yeah. And we, we're probably using the wrong medicine. Um, so I look forward to a time when aquatic medicine is to the point where we actually know what we're treating and we can treat with the right medicine. I think that's just going to be better for our aquatic animals. The problem is if we take those products away before veterinary medicine gets to that point, then we have this limbo stage where we don't have access to 
things and we don't have the professional help we need. And I think that's what we're seeing. Now, there's something also about irresponsible use of medications can create all kinds of problems. It can yeah. create uh, resistance. Um, I, I cringe every time I hear someone who is using an antibiotic and I'm like, how did you use it? And they're like, I put it in the tank and I let it sit for a week and then I considered it good. Oh, oh, because with antibiotics, you need to go through the full course of treatment and they degenerate in the water and maybe within 24 hours, they're actually not active anymore. And so you gave the fish, the, the pathogens on your fish, exposure to the antibiotic, but not a lethal dose. And now it might build resistance, right? There's all kinds of issues like that. So I think having professional veterinary help available will help prevent that. But I also don't like having my hands tied as a hobbyist when mm. I want to take care of my fish. So mm. I, uh, I think in the long run, it'll be better for the fish and worse for the hobbyist. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. I think the hard <laughs> yeah. part is, is as a hobbyist, being able to diagnose the correct problem with your fish and then seeking the correct treatment. There are two steps that, well, not all hobbyists are going to be able to do that, no matter how much information is out there. And having free access to all um, medications, it's going to crash and burn with certain hobbyists. I'm yeah. probably one of them. I'm not saying I'm any different to anybody else, but um, people are trained vets for a reason. <laughs> Yeah, it's finding yeah. that equilibrium. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a. Do you think I mean, that, there's give and take, and uh, I think it's inevitable though that it's going to go the way of dogs and cats as far as how things mm. are treated down the road. Yeah, I don't know if that's good or bad. I see pros and cons on both sides. Yeah, sorry, Cam. I was just going to. Do you think that the old mentality of when a goldfish at a fair? keep a goldfish in a bowl has hindered hindered our industry medication-wise for so long, um, disposable of them, so there's been less uh, veterinarian coming through to, to help these sort of things. Do you think that's a consideration to why we are where we are? So um, I don't quite understand the question. It has to do with goldfish that you win at the fair and veterinary medicine, but I don't quite understand the tie. Yeah, so like the, the concept of you're winning a goldfish at a fair, you're putting it in a bowl, it's disposable. Mm -hmm. So people oh. aren't, aren't going towards yes. the because of the mentality of it's only a fish, it's disposable, find something else as opposed to, I've got a living animal, let's try and care for it. I'm picking up what you're putting down now. Yeah. Until yeah. we recognize fish as having their own inherent value and needing to be respected as a living animal, if we see them as disposable, is if we see them as commodities, is we see the, if we see them as strictly ornaments, um, mm. then I think that, and that's kind of I think that's the traditional way to look at fish. I want this yeah. pretty tank in my house, which is furniture, 
and the fish are the decorations in the furniture. I, mm -hmm. I think that's a lot of people that just want a pretty tank in their living room. I think that's the mentality. And um, so if that's the mentality, then that has definitely hampered the ability of a robust uh, aquatic veterinary practice because if people are not willing to spend the money on the fish because they're disposable, then there's no market for a veterinarian. What happened with aquatic vets is people with koi cared. Yeah. So aquatic vets mm -hmm. really got their start in the ornamental fish side. There's the whole food fish side, salmon farming and all that. But on the ornamental fish side, they got started because people cared enough about koi and koi were expensive enough that they would pay to have a vet treat their koi. And so that was kind of what it was for a while. There were a few um, public aquariums that needed a veterinarian as well, but how many of those are there in the world, right? <laughs> you have maybe one vet on staff. So the, the, the demand for aquatic vets, very small. Um, it's only recently, I think, with the changes in how people see animals, um, and the kind of morals and ethics and practices around animals we have today versus how they've been in the past, that people are, for example, willing to spend money to get their betta treated mm -hmm. um, or something like that. So there's certain fish that I think are helping break down that disposable barrier and create enough of a market for an aquatic veterinarian to come in. So Cam, I think you're right on with your observation there. I've got another question up here um, from Rochelle. What, what is your product you use to help strengthen the fish's immune system and, and cope with stressful situations? The product I use is constant fresh water and time. Now, there are medications I can use if something develops a problem, and we try to work with an aquatic veterinarian to be specific about those. Although, again, there's limitations to how much they can help. Um, but... What I found to be the best thing for fish is fresh, clean water, a low stress environment and time. And that's why we built this whole facility the way we do. Um, every tank gets 100% water change every 40 to 60 minutes. So call it every hour, this tank has 100% water change. And that constant fresh water does just absolute wonders for helping a fish settle in after the stress of of being acquired. So that's my preferred way to do it. And most of the time, the vast majority of the time, that's sufficient. So that's, that's our go-to. And then if something develops, we try to pinpoint and treat. Mm -hmm. um, as, as an industry, what do you think can be improved as a whole, as far as fish care goes to, to try and get the best out of, of these animals we're, we're keeping? On the industry side specifically, it's supply chain improvements. Yeah. Um, there are ways to transport fish that don't do the fish's immune system in. There are supply chain models the other thing we haven't talked about that we try to do as a company is um, we buy as far up the supply chain as we can. Often we're buying from the person that literally went and collected the fish or literally is the person that bred the fish. So yeah. all those steps and all that time and all those different 
water parameters that they would be exposed to as they went down the supply chain normally are shrunk quite a bit. Um, I think the supply chain is the, the big problem. And I think we would get a lot more healthy fish if it was done in a way where it was, we're going to do whatever we need to do to get the fish where they're going healthy, even if that means they cost more versus I'm going to pass them the next person on the, uh, the next link. I'm going to pass them on to the next link in the chain as fast as I can. So they don't die on me. They die mm. down there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's the real issue. It's, it's supply chain. Yeah. Very much sounds like just another skew in, in a business catalog, so to speak. It's I've got a thousand of them. I want to sell a thousand of them as opposed to I've got a thousand of them. I want to make sure these thousands are pristine for the next person to still have a thousand as well, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. It, short term thinking is the is is a big problem in mm. any industry. But mm. that whole thing you said of, well, it's okay if they die, they'll come back and buy more. So that's actually good. Mm. No, it's not. Like that's very short term thinking. Let's let's draw out to the logical conclusion what happens there. And it's a bad story. So yeah. that's the kind of thing that uh that the industry itself needs to come to grips with. And one reason that our mission is to do that is because if we don't do that, we're facing an existential threat. Um, if we don't do that, then enough people will get upset and put enough pressure on politicians that we're gonna get regulated. And yeah. we don't want them regulating us, we want to regulate ourselves. Um, we know what our businesses need. We know how to do things properly if we're actually working at understanding these things. Um, you want to regulate from within your own industry. Otherwise, things come down and are put upon you that are like horrible. Yeah, they don't make any sense. They don't work and create no. all kinds of expense and bureaucracy and stuff. So our goal is to be self-regulating and to have enough impact that... Um, the industry itself ends up self-regulating and we're just a little kernel right now, but we'll be a giant redwood someday, you know, we'll be a big oak tree, but yeah. that's the goal. Yeah. So just back to your facility, because I obviously I can see it behind you and it's been tricking my mind for quite some time. How many, how many aquariums are you running in through that? And like, do you have, designated areas for incoming fish or you've got an empty tank so the next lot of fish come in there or do they move around in your facility how does how does that process and everything work for you with what you've got going on yeah. um so it full tilt right now if if every aquarium uh space on the rack is is have has water and it is going i think we're at 440 eight aquariums with room for 60 more it, fully fully stocked we'd be at 508 aquariums um but not every aquarium has fish in it some like an aquarium might crack or get a leak and then it might take me a long time to reseal it because mm -hmm. i hate doing that <laughs> it takes a whole it takes um, so yeah. but in general that's that's the capacity of the warehouse um, um would you say sorry Go no, ahead. no, go ahead. Okay, um, so since each tank is its own kind of individual system, 
we don't have to have a separate spot for quarantine. The tank is its own mm -hmm. quarantine. Each tank has its own nets, has its own stuff. And uh, so we just, whatever tank is clean becomes automatically a quarantine unit. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, John. Nope. Oh, John's, John was like, <laughs> John floated with his feet. That's what happened there. <laughs> um, so obviously your tanks behind you are running on um, sponge filters. Mm -hmm. What's the maintenance like for, for having to roll through your facility? Is it quite a time-consuming one or set and forget? Yeah, so we don't have filters in most of the tanks. Uh, okay. We have a little box filter in here. It looks like a sponge filter, but that's deceptive. It does. That's actually a piece of wood that looks uh, okay. gets dark and curved like a sponge filter would be in a, a little box filter behind it. But it looks yeah. exactly like a sponge filter. Um, but most of our tanks don't have filters. Every now and then we'll put a box filter in a tank just to kind of polish the water. Because yeah. since we're drying from that natural source, we get super fine particulates that every now and then it's like, oh, I just got to clear that out, right? Um, but in general, because we do such a high volume of water changes, there's no need for biological filtration. The, the whole point of biological filtration is get rid of biological waste. Yeah. Um, and you can do that by running water through a filter and it get cleaned by the bacteria, etc. Or you can do that by taking that water and just getting it out and bringing new water in its place. And we do that. So we don't have to worry about filtration. I mean, once we clean it up in the system and all that, we, I, I think there's some technical difficulties. There, there he is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. Sorry about that. I, I was like, man, that guy's easily offended. He's just like, I'm not. <laughs> um, so that, that helps a lot. Maintenance is always an issue because algae grows no mm. matter what you're doing. I mean, I've been to a lot of, fish warehouses, usually they're uh, wholesale facilities and they don't have lights on their aquariums. We decided we wanted to put a light on every aquarium just because I didn't know how to observe the fish well and check their health if I couldn't see them well. So we ended up with lights on every aquarium, but sometimes you'll notice the light is off um, like that one. And that's because it got a lot of algae. And so we just turn off the light for a bit to help combat that. So sometimes if we get algae and it's like, I don't, the best way to deal with algae is turn off the light for a few days, but we're constantly scrubbing algae. Um, yeah. we, we have this, and, and we're constantly trying to figure out how to, um, we don't need the tanks to be beautiful. We're not a showroom. We're a functioning warehouse. Our focus is health, not the look of the tank. Mm -hmm. but when you get enough algae on the front glass, then you can't see the fish very well. And now we're affecting fish health because if there's a problem, we can't see it. So combating that is a, a constant issue. The latest version is we start every Thursday with all hands, including myself, everybody goes and scrubs tanks, like mm -hmm. any tank that has enough algae that it's affecting our ability to, uh, or will shortly affect our ability to see the fish clearly we scrub it. So it's kind of like this constant thing. But since we have so much fresh water, we don't really worry so much about filter maintenance and all that on an aquarium level. We worry about it on a system level. So we just, we, we take care of the big system equipment and that 
most of the other stuff is besides stinking algae is pretty uh pretty self-sustaining do all the tanks have their own algae scraper because obviously they've all got their own nets or are you happy to go from one to another with a with an algae cleaner or Every 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 tank has its own. We just use a, a, its own scrubby pad. Yeah, it's it's one yeah. of those uh, acrylic blue, uh, non scratch pads like yeah. you would use in your kitchen. But every tank has its own one of those. Every tank has its own set of nets. Uh, we we really try to minimize taking crossover. a crossover of anything. Yeah. Now we are not biosecure. I, I'm not going to pretend that that couldn't happen sometimes. Even if you're using a different mm. scrubby pad, you still have water on your hand. Even if you dry your hand, there might be something under your fingernail. Like I'm not yeah. going to pretend that I go in a hazmat suit between every tank, <laughs> you know, or anything like that. But but we do our best to be reasonably cautious. Yeah. I've had another question about the cauliflower sword toes. Uh, a for me, what is a cauliflower swordtail? But B, why are they so special? Well, for me, A, we were able to get them. They're hard to get. But B, the reason is I've looked for. I'm not even talking about like a, a, a in a. I've just been looking for healthy cauliflower swordtails for years, let alone good finnage or anything like that. Just a healthy fish. And I've tried and tried, and I've had problems in the past, and I had to stop bringing them in. And what happened was I brought them in, and I was so excited. They were so beautiful. And then just every few days, one would die, and I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And so uh, we had a veterinarian who wanted some, and they sent some to a lab. And now we do this actually, we actually have some in the lab right now for analysis. Now we do this, uh, I wouldn't say all the time, but with certain fish. Um, so we send them to a lab where they do pathologies and histologies and stuff to find out what is going on with these fish. They look perfect. What is happening? And they found out they have a virus. It's a virus that's hmm. not treatable. It comes from the source. So the only option was for me to stop bringing them in because the supplier has this virus ingrained in their stock and it's not treatable. So mm. I can't send that to my customer. So for a long time, I just couldn't get them. A few months ago, I found a new supplier and I did some homework and someone that I trust and have worked with quite a bit, uh, vouched for them. And so I tried them and I brought them in world of difference, healthy and happy. Um, they do come in with, um, most fish come in with, with something they do come in with a, a small little parasite but it's not a virus i can treat a parasite without any problem um and uh so that's why they're special it's just because i can get them and they're they don't have that issue where it's like hmm. this gradual die-off it's so frustrating because they look perfect oh but now another one's dead <laughs> you know yeah so yeah that's what it is it's i finally found a supply of healthy ones and what, what is a cauliflower sword tail like? Um, I oh, wish I could. Can I? Let's see here. I can show you. I think I can present on here. Let me show you. Um, We're about to do some learning. So if I can present, share my screen. Sharing screen. Okay. Da, 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 da. 
I've never done this on this program before. Let's see if this will work. At least that I can remember. And, uh, there we go. Okay. You might need to give me permission, Cam. I don't know if it'll even allow me. There we go. Yep. Waiting for you. Okay. So, so here's a cauliflower. Actually, yeah. I okay. The difference between cauliflower and Vienna, I I need to learn a little better. But in essence, it's something like this. It's a high fin that mm -hmm. has a lot of pleats in it. So they call oh, that cauliflower. Yeah. Um, so it's a fish like that. They're really pretty. Like so unreasonably expensive, but so pretty and healthy. So that's what they are. And it's hard to find them. It's just they're almost never available. So cool. got them and got healthy ones. That's a win to me. From there, we'll awesome. improving things. Um, I have a lot to learn about them, though. I am not an expert on live bearer genetics. And there's specific things about cauliflower traits and Vienna traits and liar tail traits and veil tail traits and all these things that I don't know that much about. So one of my tasks when I can find a minute is to bone up on all that stuff because yeah. there's been some customers that know a lot more than I do that are like, well, actually, and I'm like, oh, I had no idea. It's always a fun time. Do you do any of your own breeding in your facility or are you strictly fish come in, fish come out type of thing? I used to do the majority breeding and then as things grew, um, I couldn't keep up. So I started bringing more in. Now I do the majority bringing in, buying from breeders and, and collectors. My favorite yeah. is hobbyist breeders. That's where I want to get my fish. Um, yeah. But we do some breeding. So we breed the Catamaca live bearer. It's a Ziphophorus um, milleri small little uh, swordless swordtail mm -hmm. and yellow with black spots all over it. We breed, uh, right now we have a group of Limia perugiae. We have a big group of uh, Chilothrina calia, uh, wallum, speaking of rainbows that we bred and raised here that are offered for sale right now. Um, so yeah, we do a little bit. We love it. Uh, there's a few other species too. Uh, what, red hump, Geophagus, some mollies, a little bit of a mix. We love doing it, but the demands of the business don't let us do it, you know, all yeah, that yeah. much. So, yeah. yeah. That, that makes absolute sense. You can only put your time where your time can go. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. What's, what's your current biggest challenge that you've got within your business, um, the, the way you're, you're currently operating, and, and how's that working for you? It's scaling in general. Um, anytime you're scaling a business, you know, it used to just be me in my basement. Now mm -hmm. it's me in a specialized kind of high tech warehouse with a crew. Um, and every step of growth puts new demands on you. So really, I would say the challenge is it's going to be a general answer, but it's rolling with the punches. It's, mm -hmm. um, hey, we just grew to this amount. Now this thing's an issue. Didn't foresee that. How do we fix that problem? How do we optimize things? Yeah. So there's this tension between efficiency and quality. 
quality is our litmus test. Quality is our standard. So we have to find ways to increase efficiency, but not at the compromise of quality. And so that tension is something we're always navigating. And anytime we do find that, oh shoot, we're having more problems with quality, didn't foresee that, we have to, this doesn't happen often, but anytime you make a change, there can be ramifications. Then we have to figure out how to switch that back or make a different change or whatever. So there's this continual learning curve. There's a lot of A-B testing. There's a lot of just collecting data and crunching it in models and trying to never compromise quality, but still run a good scaled, sustainable business. And I would say that's the big challenge. Um, yeah. Right now, the challenge is how do we take some of the body fatigue off our crew because when you're sitting there with our little sealers and sealing bags all day long there's a lot of these repetitive motions and i did it for years i i i, I know what it's like um your shoulder might get a little sore so how do we build things into the workday where we can change rotate stations or make it so people are okay um mm. and what equipment can we have that would ease that so right now we're looking at getting a more automated sealing machine. So instead of having to use your muscles to seal things down, you could take the bag of fish, put it in the machine, and it would automatically fill it with oxygen and seal it. And um, you would just be there watching, you know, as it happens, instead of using your shoulder muscles and putting strain on that. So yeah. right now that's our challenge. We're trying to make it so that... Uh, as we do more and more, this week we ship more fish than we've ever shipped before. Just It's just growing and growing. As that happens, it's like, oh, shoot, now people are getting sore. We better fix that. You know, so yeah. it's, that's the current challenge, one of. I, um, I understand this, the scaling aspect of it and to an extent what you were saying there with the uh, you, more things going through, so there's more fatigue. Mm -hmm. I've always sort of likened it to like baking a cake for like, a normal size cake this is your recipe that's fine but if you're needing to quadruple that to feed four times the amount of people you can't quadruple the recipe because it's not going to balance it mm. so you still got to increase that but balance everything at the same time to make it it's, it's not quite as simple as just doubling what you're what you're doing so to speak which is yeah which is the I know, yeah it makes total sense i know nothing about baking but i'm coming over cam i'm hungry I can't bake either. <laughs> can't save you. Yeah. Cool. So I think uh, that brings us to basically all of the questions that I, I have sort of formally written down, ready to, to rock and roll with. Um, uh, and this is some more questions that people want to ask from from the chat. Uh, we like to sort of end our, our, our coffee dates with a, a quick school of six for... Um, very short, simple answer type questions. So um, if you're ready for that, let's rock in through for that. All right. Rapid cool. fire hot seat. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? <clears throat> oh, geez. I'm going to go with detachable arm. Because then <laughs> when I spoon with my wife, my shoulder wouldn't hurt because I just <laughs> move my arm. Ah, uh, Yes. I think most people understand that theory. 
Uh, if you could have a meal with absolutely anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? Hmm. Tricky one. I think, yeah. So, okay, short answer. Sorry, so much dead air. Um, <laughs> I think I think it'd be Sophocles. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And just awesome playwright from my background in theater, but also seemed like a guy that I could have learned a lot about life from. Cool. Uh, paper, scissors, rocks. What's your first call? Rock. Cool. I've no um, idea why. It just pops in my head. <laughs> uh, do you think we're alone in the universe? I think statistically it's improbable. Mm-hmm. Cool. If animals could talk, which one would be the dirtiest? A coelacanth. I don't trust those things. <laughs> and what is a unicorn fish for you, either keeping it, spawning it, owning it, finding it, whatever it might be? Congo Panchax brashardi. It's a small little killifish. A little lamp eye from West Africa that I've, my friend had them once. I've seen pictures of them. I've never been able to get them in myself. I've tried and tried. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, that is our six and, and that is what we've got. So thank you very much for um, joining us. It was really, really appreciated. I know you're a busy man and for you to come on for a couple of hours, it's, it's greatly appreciated. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, gents. Cool. Yeah. No, right. definitely worth it and yeah with that we'll leave it so thank you everyone for joining us really appreciate it uh we'll see you next week so have a good one team happy fish keeping catch you later right, bye everybody have a good weekend thank you bye then